Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganuela. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. John Chachari. Now, John is an associate professor and director of the Wiser Diplomacy Center and International Policy Center at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. Much of his work focuses on international interventions in conflict-torn states, and he has a new book out entitled Sovereignty Sharing in Fragile States, which is the basis for today's conversation. Uh, John worked in the Treasury Department's Office of International Affairs. He was an associate at the international law firm of Davis Polk and has more degrees than anyone I know. John, this is a a particular treat for me and Andre. Uh, We had the great privilege of getting to know you and working with you while Andre and I were students at the University of Michigan. Uh, So looking forward to this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ryan and Andre, for having me. It's wonderful to see you, and and congrats on all of the success you've had with the burn bag. I'm, I'm honored to be able to join. Thank you so much. So I guess first things first, this book, can you give a brief overview of what exactly it's about? And why did you want to write this book at this time? The book is basically about uh, cases in which international actors share authorities that we usually think of as core state functions like criminal adjudication or policing uh, or economic uh, governance uh, in cases when the state is compromised in its ability to meet its responsibilities. Uh, I wrote the book now because uh, as much as ever, Governance challenges in many parts of the world are really tough to address, and uh, development professionals, uh, international security professionals, and others uh, are looking for new and innovative ways to deal with these uh, obstacles to the rule of law and to to development uh, and to peace building. And uh, sovereignty sharing arrangements are something that has come onto the horizon over the last couple of decades as one possible model for dealing with these governance shortfalls. And I want to explore them a little more systematically than anyone's done to date to compare them from different parts of the world and different policy domains to see when they might be effective, if ever, in addressing some of these tough challenges. Well, John, there's certainly much to get into today, but I want to kind of begin by defining and dissecting some key concepts. The first is sovereignty. It's a term that I think everyone has heard of, uh, but may not actually know what it means. And so uh, how have you conceptualized or how do you understand sovereignty? And maybe you can help kind of give a briefer on it for our listeners. Well, I think of sovereignty as having several faces. One of them is juridical sovereignty, the notion that there can only be one actor, normally a sovereign government, uh, that has ultimate authority uh, in a particular territory or over a particular group of people. And Uh, That's, of course, the form of sovereignty that is recognized internationally so that there's one sovereign government of Brunei and one sovereign government of uh, 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 Bangladesh and one sovereign government of Botswana. Uh, But there's a second face of sovereignty uh, that is the Westphalian conception that sovereignty is a defense against unwanted external interference. Uh, And this is the form of sovereignty that's most often spoken about in international political discourse when debates arise about what the appropriate role is of international actors vis-a-vis uh, domestic authorities. The third face of sovereignty, which is very relevant to my study, is not so much a normative concept, but it's more a descriptive concept uh, about the types of domestic governing authority that one gains by virtue of sovereign status. 
if you have juridical sovereignty, what does that entitle you to do in your own jurisdiction? That type of domestic sovereignty can be unbundled. There's only one juridical sovereignty in a given territory, but there are many different domestic authorities that flow from that status. And this domestic set of authorities is what can be unbundled and shared in the kinds of arrangements that I study in the book. So when we talk about sovereignty sharing, like when I first hear that phrase, it sort of sounds a bit neo-imperialist to me or savior-esque for some reason, or somewhat interventionist to say the least. What exactly is sovereignty sharing? The way that I conceive of it and treat it in the book is that sovereignty sharing arrangements are consent-based agreements between uh, a national government and various international actors to share some of the domestic authorities that the government has. And it's generally done for two reasons. One is in the short term to provide better governance services in a country that is torn by conflict or otherwise uh, struggling to meet its responsibilities. And the second goal is to bring about institutional reform. And in my book, I focus mostly on rule of law reform. Now, as you say, uh, the term is uh, inevitably going to raise concerns about neo-imperialism and and international overreach. There's no doubt sovereignty sharing is extremely deeply interventionist uh, and raises a lot of legitimate concerns about powerful actors uh, intervening in often quite weak or vulnerable states. That's why the the consent requirement is so important here, and ideally not just the consent of the the state, but also the consent of of many in the population, uh, or most in the population. Uh, Without state consent, if this were forced upon uh, a fragile state, uh, then yes, it would would certainly have a neo-imperial character to it. Uh, If there is a uh, relatively robust indication of, of local consent, uh, then it becomes more of a partnership. And the, the goal of these partnerships is, of course, to have a marriage between the resources of the international community and of the host state government. Uh, it gains legitimacy potentially from both sides and also gains different forms of knowledge and expertise uh, and resources. If the two parties work well together, then they can uh, forge a partnership that might be able to provide better services and contribute to reform. Uh, where they don't operate well alongside one another. Of course, these are going to be very fraught joint ventures. So John, I kind of a two-part question here, just because I think they're so interlinked. The first being is your book focuses on fragile states in particular. And so I think it's important for us to understand really what a, a fragile state is. And uh, with that, there's the corollary of you know rule of law. You know, Seeking to promote rule of law, I, I assume that Fragile states inherently lack rule of law. And so what, what is rule of law and how is it really typically achieved by the national governments that you're studying? Yeah, there's no single agreed definition or uh, typology of fragile states, but the most common uh, bundle of characteristics that fragile states possess are a lack of of complete territorial control or a lack of a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Uh, secondly, uh, a deficiency in uh, uh, legitimate authority to make decisions and to govern. That is to say that the population, or at least large swathes of the population, don't see the government as legitimate. And then thirdly, uh, that the government is not able to provide the range of services that one would normally expect of, of a government, be that education and health or security or other, uh, other aspects of governance. Uh, and 
by most reasonable metrics, uh, there are at least a few dozen countries that comfortably sit within this definition of fragile states. And there are a lot of others that are closer to the border where they're fragile in some areas of governance, but perhaps a little bit more robust or competent in others. Uh, And the countries that I examine in the book are mostly in a category of clearly qualifying under these definitions as fragile. Uh, But even that group of countries from Lebanon to Timor-Leste to Guatemala to Liberia uh, is is quite heterogeneous and, and again, have different areas of, of relative strength and weakness. A very common denominator uh, among fragile states uh, is a weak rule of law, where rule of law refers to constraints on the arbitrary exercise of power. And in domestic systems, the ways we usually try to impose those constraints are through independent courts, through legislative checks, through norms and institutions such as a free press. Uh, When those constraints are lacking, uh, then typically the executive and other actors, including non-state actors, are able to use their power uh, to commit abuses without, uh, you know, while, while enjoying impunity or without much accountability. And uh, sovereignty sharing arrangements, at least in some cases, have been uh, specifically directed toward strengthening rule of law institutions. One reason why I pick the rule of law as a domain to focus on in the book is that these are tough cases for shared sovereignty. It's a lot easier for a government to share its authority to hand out syringes for COVID-19 vaccines than it is for a government to to, uh, partner in an effort that would strengthen independent courts that would then hold that government more accountable. And so rule of law reform is particularly difficult in international affairs, and uh, therefore these sovereignty sharing arrangements uh, uh, tend to be some of the most challenging. So... You sort of certainly highlighted why sovereignty sharing is important, at least for these countries. But how exactly does sovereignty sharing manifest itself? Does it manifest itself in hybrid courts, uh, police powers, anti-corruption, or or what? In the the rule of law area, uh, it manifests itself in several ways, and you've just mentioned a few of them. Uh, Think about joint policing ventures in places like Haiti or in Central African Republic or Kosovo. Uh, it can manifest itself in joint or international criminal investigative commissions, as it has in, say, Lebanon and Guatemala and Timor-Leste. It can take the form of hybrid courts that mix domestic and international laws and procedures and personnel, uh, as has been done in, say, Sierra Leone or Cambodia uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, it can take the form of economic governance uh, interventions, as it did in a in a particularly interesting and and somewhat unique case in Liberia, in which international advisors had co-signing authority over certain key decisions that Liberian officials made as a way to impose a sort of external check on governance. So, John, I'm curious about the actual actors, right? The players in this sovereignty sharing, they're they're certainly domestic and international. We have, of course, the most important probably player domestically being the domestic government. And then internationally, right, you have uh, foreign governments, say the US, maybe the UK, others as well, but also intergovernmental organizations. And so uh, is there, are, are there certain trends that you see throughout your book? Is it, is it more likely for uh, IGOs to kind of take part in this or more so for, for sovereign governments? And then if, as far as within a country, right, you, you have this government, but what other um, institutions are crucial? Is it right, the courts? Are there uh, domestic 
civil society organizations really, or is it maybe I guess a case by case? You know, it's all very different. Uh, well, it's a it's a great question because there are lots of relevant stakeholders here. Let's start with the international side because uh, it goes back to Andre's question about the potentially neo empirical imperial character of this. Uh, a sovereignty sharing arrangement that welcomed a single foreign state to carry out functions like policing or criminal adjudication would look an awful lot like practices of the past that are deeply disfavored uh, in a post-colonial space. And, f- and largely for that reason, the international side of these arrangements generally has been the United Nations or some other multilateral organization uh, that doesn't bear the same indicia uh, of, you know, in, a, in a sort of post-colonial context. And so the UN is the partner for most hybrid courts. It's the partner for most joint policing missions that I look at. There are times in which regional organizations play this role as well, or ad hoc international coalitions. But it's important that there be some distinction between the handful of states that are perhaps most interested in the intervention and funding it versus the institution that is responsible for deploying personnel and holding them accountable. There is, in a sense, within the international side, a check and balance arrangement uh, if you have uh, state donors, but also international organizations involved. And usually the face of these operations has been the UN. On the national side, as you said, there are a bunch of important stakeholders too. You've got the national government, which can be broken down into, into various components. Sometimes there is strong legislative and executive support for these arrangements, sometimes not. Uh, Sometimes there is a difference between the reception to a sovereignty sharing arrangement by the president of the country and the rank and file officers who are partnering with the internationals in the field. Imagine a police mission, for example. Uh, It's important not only to have the uh, rank and file cops partnering with the internationals effectively, but also the police commanders, uh, this, the head of the Department of Interior, all the way up to the, the presidency. Uh, and so uh, sovereignty sharing, navigating a sovereignty sharing arrangement requires uh, uh, considering the, uh, the interests uh, and possible impediments from each of these different stakeholder groups. And as you said, civil society also plays a role because public opinion is going to say a lot about whether these, these initiatives are regarded as legitimate. And the average member of the public is generally not as attentive to these things as will be thought leaders in the media and in civil society. And so they do play important roles in in evaluating and potentially legitimating or delegitimating an operation. So in one of your previous answers, you sort of mentioned some examples of countries uh, that sort of typified uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, in your book, certainly you go through some of these case studies. So I just wanted to ask you, uh, why do you pick these particular countries as your cases through which to evaluate these? And uh, I guess like sort of what in those cases sort of shows that sovereignty sharing is successful and unsuccessful in some cases. So I picked uh, three sets of cases. I looked at some hybrid courts, I looked at uh, policing ventures, and I looked at a range of anti-corruption initiatives, including criminal investigation or economic governance interventions. And I picked the cases uh, that involved the most robust international investment uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that those cases tend to be presented as the models, for better or for worse, for follow-on proposed uh, sovereignty-sharing arrangements. And secondly, there are a number of times in which sovereignty-sharing has been tried 
and where international investment has been very weak and the venture has stood little chance of success. I wanted to give a fair shot to these arrangements to see how they played out if there was reasonably strong financial and political investment on the international side. And so we look at, uh, for example, the hybrid courts in Sierra Leone and, and, and Cambodia and for Lebanon, and contrasts cases uh, 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 between those that were more successful and not. And you asked, well, what are the key factors for success? Um, overall, the main factor for success is to have uh, what I call a supportive political equilibrium. Another way of putting this is that you need a winning political coalition that is going to support and defend the venture. In a, in a rule of law setting, there will always be domestic elites that are resistant to uh, a venture of this kind, precisely because its goal is to constrain the unfettered exercise of power. Uh, and then in a post-conflict space, you add to that the fact that there is often no shortage of people who have dirty hands from the conflict or from the, the past period of repressive rule, um, or uh, at a minimum, have benefited in some way from, from the existing modes of doing business. So for all those reasons, there's going to be resistance. There will also be some public resistance because international actors don't arrive when they jump off the plane with governing legitimacy on an intrinsic basis. Uh, as you started off by asking, there will always be concerns about unelected outsiders coming and performing governance functions. It looks a lot like colonialism. And therefore, there needs to be a winning coalition uh, developed to support these ventures and to legitimate them over time. It always needs to include at least some domestic uh, officials, because without some domestic officials, the state couldn't issue uh, valid consent. But it also almost always will require uh, strong international backing, uh, including at the diplomatic level and often at the civil society level as well. And it includes uh, a large share of the population seeing the venture as either desirable or at least worth giving a chance. Most of these ventures arrive in countries that have uh, uh, rule of law problems and where government legitimacy is low. And for that reason, populations generally are willing to take a wait and see attitude or provide a cushion of acceptance to the internationals when they arrive. If the internationals perform better than the state institutions, then the venture can gain public legitimacy, which helps to protect it politically and bolsters the winning po political coalition. If the venture doesn't perform well, uh, then it will almost certainly be regarded as illegitimate on the grounds that outsiders are calling the shots uh, uh, without a direct line of accountability to the population that they're purporting to serve. I mean, it's, it's certainly fascinating that you have these kind of two key players domestically. You have the government and the public. And throughout your, your, the case studies that you go through, have you found that one can be more effective than the other in kind of charting the, the success of these efforts, right? Do you necessarily need public approval or can the government, given if it's a, a strong enough government, can they actually maintain a level of success? And I guess the, the, the inverse of that, can, can a public, uh, with their support of the initiative, kind of strong arm the government into complying with the international intervention? There's certainly a possibility that a government can authorize a, a venture of this kind and render it legal uh, and procure enough legitimacy just by government fiat to allow it to run for a while. But if the joint venture is not seen as advancing the aspirations of the public, 
then it certainly is not going to have any popular legitimacy. And it then becomes very questionable whether it could be regarded as effective. Most of these ventures start with broad objectives about governance and rule of law for the benefit of the people. That's why we have rule of law institutions. It's because we want the people to be protected from arbitrary power. And so if the population thinks it's a failure, by most reasonable definitions, it's a failure. Now, on the flip side, you asked, well, what if the population supports it, um, but many elites do not? There are examples, a few, of cases in which uh, popular support has helped to protect sovereignty-sharing ventures, even when government uh, headwinds were apparent. The best example is in Guatemala, where a, an anti-impunity commission was set up in uh, 2007 and uh, carried out a string of investigations that led even to the, uh, to the fall of, of the government of Otto Perez Molina uh, in 2015. And by the time that process was completed, uh, the CISIG, as this anti-impunity commission was called, was the most trusted public institution in Guatemala, even more than the Catholic Church. And popular support for it was so strong that it did incentivize politicians to keep this venture alive, even though there was fear among a lot of governing officials that they could be next in line to face, to face the, uh, the commission's investigations. Having said that, uh, an, an important pillar for supporting CISIG was also international support. Then Vice President Biden went down to Guatemala and convinced Perez Molina uh, in the lead up to his own uh, his investigation to keep CISIG alive. Uh, under the Trump presidency, the U.S. sort of backed off on its support for the commission. And even though public support remained high, uh, resistant government officials were able to uh, turn the tide and shut the commission down. Ultimately, incumbent officials hold the sovereign prerogative of withdrawing consent. And so they have that lever. They can shut down a sovereignty sharing arrangement. Um, that's why it's a little bit long response to your question, but public support can be very important part of the support, but it is not alone sufficient. There almost always has to be uh, some support from within the government elites and also from the international community to keep these ventures alive. So now I want to dig into where sovereignty sharing can sort of go wrong for either both the partner countries or just one of them. So in this situation, like what if, you know, the host state, it falls into further crisis and then the donor state has to double down? Does sovereignty sharing present a situation in which the donor can get, quote unquote, stuck in that country? Absolutely. And there's a tendency when people hear about this concept to think that to have an image that the internationals are standing by the door eager to exercise this authority and control and that they're having to overcome domestic resistance. In many cases, international organizations and foreign states are very reluctant to take on domestic authority because they're afraid of the quicksand. They're worried that on day one, I'm coming because I say we need to quell a riot in the city capital. And Ten years later, they've got police deployed around the country responsible for a wide array of functions that are difficult to manage uh, and where there's no exit strategy. So yes, there is a, a danger of getting, of getting stuck and having a kind of mission creep phenomenon. But there's also another way that internationals can get stuck, and that is that as conditions change, many of these ventures come about during periods when the governments are particularly needy or vulnerable and where their leverage is low. And that's why they either agree to or even request that internationals come share their authority. 
over time, as the crisis passes or if it passes, the government regains some strength, regains bargaining leverage, and often is able then to grab the steering wheel and and use the venture more to advance its own aims. If those aims are identical to those of the international, no, no problem, then the two sides uh, can get along well. But more often than not, uh, when sovereigns reassert control, they're doing it in part because they want to steer away from some of those rule of law reforms. And when that occurs, an international uh, uh, institution might find itself stuck in a venture too too deeply committed reputationally and financially to pull out, but unable to uh, uh, to manage it in a way that they see as successful. Um, and so in either of those two ways, they can indeed get stuck. All right, John, I want to kind of talk about the incentive structure for the donor countries, right? Of course, from the IGO perspective, right there, they're doing it because they're structured, they're set up to do these types of things. Uh, but when you're looking at countries like the United States, the UK, others, uh, there, there's got to be a whole list of incentives in engaging in sovereignty sharing because, I mean, I, I imagine it, it, it requires many resources. And I, another question would be, really, what do these resources look like? Certainly money and personnel and materials. But, but at the end of the day, what are the certain incentives, right? What are the reasons behind engaging in sovereignty sharing from the donor's perspective? Good question. Um... The original reason why this idea came about, and Stephen Krasner, who was a, a director of policy planning at the State Department and teaches at Stanford, was the best known initial sort of exponent of this as an idea. It was a response to uh, transnational threats, particularly in the period after 9-11. The idea that fragile states or failed states were a threat not only to their own populations, but to the international community more broadly, because you'd likely have areas in which terrorist organizations could grow, where uh, international criminal or narcotic activity could fester, where um, um, large-scale migration could occur uh, as a result of government repression or mismanagement. And so one interest in, uh, in this space is to prevent those kinds of harms. And a good example might be the case of, of U.S. involvement in Haiti. Uh, the U.S. government uh, has had a special interest in what happens in Haiti because of the geographic proximity to Florida and to the United States more generally. And that has been a, a driving force in why uh, uh, the U.S. government has been a leader of some of the sovereignty sharing elements of the international interventions in Haiti. There's also the question of when international interests could be malign. So uh, when Australia, for example, uh, set out to lead a couple of sovereignty sharing ventures in uh, in its uh, vicinity in places like the Solomon Islands and 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 uh, Timor Leste. Uh, there was uh, at least potentially a mix of motives. Part of the motive is to deal with these sort of transnational threats. Uh, there were also critics who said that this is uh, Australia trying to exert dominance or control over these uh, weaker neighbors uh, and. Uh, potentially, uh, as in many cases, whether it's the U.S. or Australia or France or Britain, uh, there may be interests economically or in terms of resources in the countries uh, that they're helping to govern. And this gets back to the to the normative question about why why sovereignty sharing is so sensitive. Uh, if if it's perceived by the host government or by the population that the internationals are here because they want to take our resources, as opposed to they're here because they want to. Uh, assist in a, in a humanitarian process or development, uh, obviously that would have effects on on the mission's legitimacy. So you sort of talk about those perceptions, right? And 
there's this idea of consent that sort of pops up. And I mean, it's very, it's consent is certainly a very important topic, but uh, there are certainly situations, I guess, in which consent may actually be ambiguous when you're dealing with these fragile states, these weak states, especially states that are undergoing civil war, have like an unclear central government. So what are these situations, I guess, in which consent may be ambiguous and how does it impede uh, sovereignty sharing, I guess, by the donor country? You're right that consent is is often compromised, and in fact, in the book, I have a, a uh, one of the prime concerns about sovereignty sharing is this problem of compromised consent. So it might be compromised because new states are being formed with the international community acting as a midwife, as it did in Kosovo and Bosnia and Timor Leste. It might be that a government consent is compromised because the government is utterly uh, desperate for support and therefore can't bargain, almost a duress-like situation. And here you think about the, f- the frailty of the Central African Republic or, or uh, South Sudan's government uh, in, in some periods, or certainly the case of Solomon Islands in the 2000s. Um, a third consent problem is that the government may be able to issue its approval quite clearly, but it may not speak for the population. And that also is a compromised form of consent. Or the government may uh, consent robustly to some of the objectives of the mission, but not others. So it it really supports the prosecution of these three defendants, but doesn't support uh, the prosecution of others. And that's been a problem in the Cambodian uh, hybrid court. It's also been a problem at times in in other cases. Um, And so how do we think about that? Well, if you're going to rest all of your weight on legitimating shared sovereignty through consent, that's a problem. It's a problem that you have so many instances where the consent is compromised. So you have to legitimate the venture in another way, or at least supplement that source of legitimacy with other sources. One I referenced a moment ago, which is the perceived intentions of the intervening parties. Uh, If they appear to be motivated primarily by concerns about human security, regional stability, and so on, all else being equal, that would tend to render it more more legitimate in the eyes of the, the host population. If they intend to be motivated by uh, you know, neo-imperial control, of course, would delegitimate it. But you'd also probably wouldn't want to put too much on the second leg of the stool in legitimating shared sovereignty, because if the internationals come with good intentions and, and uh, mess everything up, then the local population will almost certainly not be uh, welcoming of the intervention. And so the third leg, which I argue has to carry most of the weight, is performance. Uh, I I mentioned a few minutes ago that populations in states with big governance problems often will be willing to give internationals a chance and wait and see how they perform. If they perform well, uh, then they'll tend to invest at least acceptance in international presence and maybe even see the venture as legitimate. I think in Guatemala, the Anti-Impunity Commission became seen as not just acceptable, but outright legitimate as a governance body in Guatemala. Um, That's relatively rare. More often, I think these ventures are in the sort of acceptance space. Um, But uh, even that, uh, I think, would be an essential underpinning for for any kind of composite sense of legitimacy. So I just want to ask a quick follow-up. All of this sort of reminds me of Iraq and Afghanistan and U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. Are those two examples of sovereignty sharing? There are some cases of of yes. At the outset, if you look at the coalition provisional authority in 2003, right after Saddam was deposed, that would not fall within my definition because that was a military occupation. It was not based on the consent of a recognized sovereign government. 
However, if you look in Afghanistan now, uh, they have uh, a a joint anti-corruption commission uh, that has international and Afghan members, uh, and that that probes uh, uh, allegations of of official corruption. That's a classic sovereignty sharing venture because the sovereign governments led by Hamid Karzai and then Ashraf Ghani have blessed and and uh, assented to this arrangement and. Uh, one could say, I don't look in the book at military operations, but one could say in both Iraq and Afghanistan that the status of forces arrangements that the U.S. has signed with those two governments are also sovereignty sharing arrangements. They're in a different domain than I look at in this book, but they certainly fit the the general description. I got to say, John, one of the most interesting aspects of this comes into like the legal, the legal world, right? I'm, I'm a law student, so you practice law for many years and you have your law degree. Uh, and when you have foreigners coming into your own legal system uh, and kind of, I, I wouldn't say necessarily intervening. It is, I guess, intervention in some respect, but uh, I got to imagine it's very hard for the, the population to buy in to foreigners kind of weaving their way into how countries prosecute crimes, or even when you're looking at you know, some sort of anti-corruption effort, uh, is, there, is there ever a way in which the, the governments or maybe um, interest groups within these countries attempt to scapegoat the foreigners if it doesn't go well, or even maybe during the process, like uh, someone who's caught up in political corruption or someone maybe for a crime. Are there, are there situations in which this might actually occur? Definitely, yes. I mean, first of all, I agree with you entirely that, that it's a dicey proposition to have, to have unelected foreigners carrying out governance functions. And that's why I think performance is so important to legitimate uh, these ventures. The population wouldn't even consider conferring legitimacy on foreigners unless circumstances were quite unsatisfactory in their domestic arena. Um, but if they're really unhappy with how their domestic government is functioning and they see a foreigner come and do the job well, they may be willing to countenance that and say, I'm, I care more about the quality of services than they do about the sort of formal uh, uh, accountability mechanism or electoral mechanism that gave the person the role. Um, but as you said, even in that circumstance, the host government has, uh, has considerable capacity to be able to uh, pin failings on internationals uh, if, if things go awry, and that does happen. Uh, if, if a policing mission is found not to be effective in, in, in quelling a demonstration, um, there often could be finger pointing in both directions. If the ruling from a tribunal is unpopular, again, there could be finger pointing in both directions. This is where a sovereignty sharing venture can really break down, of course, if the two sides are working at cross purposes and, and, and engaging in mutual re- recrimination, uh, then it's hard to imagine that anyone would see the venture as a whole as being, uh, as being very effective. So in terms of like actually figuring sovereignty sharing into the foreign policies of certain countries, how prevalent is it? Like, how prevalent and integral is sovereignty sharing to foreign policies of certain countries? Is this like an often used uh, strategy by the United States, for example, to achieve its own goals? Is it a, a strategy used by aspiring region, regional hegemons, for example, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe, and so on? It's a good question. Uh, the the formal rule of law domain arrangements that I study in the book are still relatively rare. Um, You can almost count them on your fingers and toes. Uh, But there are a lot of other domains in which sovereignty sharing is more common. 
think about monetary policy if a country dollarizes its outsourcing its sovereignty to the Federal Reserve. Uh, if a country hosts uh, U.S. or British or, or other service personnel and has one of these agreements that allow them to operate on the territory and carry out certain functions, it's sharing sovereignty. Uh, when you think about the response to the pandemic, uh, when when international organizations are on the front line uh, uh, dispersing uh, medicine or other treatments to, to people, uh, they could be said to be exercising sovereign authority, at least if it, if it involves some exercise of discretion. Uh, and so there are lots of areas in which, in which it occurs. Uh, and I would say it is, it is quite common in fragile states to see many elements or faces of shared sovereignty. The rule of law area has been one of the toughest. Um, I would say also that it has been an important part uh, of the foreign policies of the United States, of Britain, of France, of Australia, uh, uh, in particular, since, since the sort of 9-11 era. And remains a, 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 an item on the menu that is considered in dealing with fragile states, but it has had something of a recession in the last few years. The uh, Trump administration um, brought a sort of reversion to realism, more respect for Westphalian sovereignty, less interest in intervening on, on some of these humanitarian grounds than did the uh, Obama administration and, and, and the Bush and uh, uh, administration before it. Uh, we'll see if that changes with the new Biden administration, um, but it is not a. It's in other words, it's not a fixed prong of U.S. foreign policy. Um, but over time, at least during Bush and Obama, it became a, a, a meaningful one, including in the rule of law area. So, what about Russia and China? I might be captive to my Western point of view, but I, I can't imagine that many countries would, you know, take these two countries with open arms in some sort of sovereignty sharing agreement and. For me, I guess if I were a, a small country in Eastern Europe, I would not welcome Russia's sovereignty sharing agreement just because it might be a, a veiled attempt to kind of a, engage in some sort of aggression. I just, you know, as the situation in, in Ukraine is unfolding, I, I keep that in the back of my mind. Sure. And there certainly is a history with Russia in particular of having, of having uh, formal Cold War era uh, relationships with satellite states that were absolutely about shared sovereignty. Now, those might be characterized as more coercive than voluntary, but in the contemporary period, Russia's relations with its neighbors point to the the other thing I should have uh, said in response to Andre's question, which is it's not just about formal arrangements, it's also about informal arrangements. Uh, all around the world, there are advisors stationed in governments who are doing everything from tax policy to environmental policy to education policy. And very often, their terms of reference have them as technical assistance advisors there to bolster state capacity. In practice, they often veer into decision making roles and have the tacit or sometimes quasi-explicit permission to do that from the host government. And certainly in that regard, while Russia and China don't have a lot of formal sovereignty sharing arrangements, they absolutely have arrangements with some of their neighbors that have this informal sovereignty sharing quality. Um, in China, you also have the uh, case of the port in Sri Lanka, a good example of, of a a striking departure from China's normal deference to Westphalian sovereignty in which it, it uh, gained a 99-year lease uh, over a strategically vital port uh, in exchange for some uh, uh, debt consideration from the Sri Lankan side. And, and 
China also, for a, a period of time, had some of its own police operating in Zambia in areas where the Chinese were investing. And so as China's reach around the world and its investment uh, uh, becomes uh, deeper in places like sub-Saharan Africa, uh, China is starting to tiptoe into arrangements that look a little bit like shared sovereignty. It's possible that China will engage in more of that over time, that its, its traditional stout defense of Westphalian sovereignty will give rise to uh, a more porous conception of sovereignty in line with its interests. So, John, this kind of raises in my mind, right, when you have uh, these, these countries, particularly China, uh, with their foreign direct investments around the world, and, and in many cases in fragile states or maybe uh, states that are uh, in the global south that we kind of consider developing. And so uh, with that, you have many times corporations that are taking on huge infrastructure projects, investing heavily uh, in certain areas, many of them urban areas. And in many scenarios, they are creating their own mini cities, their own little sovereigns. And so is there a, a concern in your mind that we'll see uh, companies, whether state-owned or partially state-owned or just you know normal private corporations, taking on more of a, of a, a sovereign role, maybe a, a quote-unquote sovereign, sovereignty sharing role, but in the more capitalistic sense? Yeah, there's, I, I've been talking so far in our, our conversation all about official exercise of shared sovereignty, whether it's uh, foreign states or international organizations, but uh, private companies and NGOs also provide governance services and in some cases might be formally or informally authorized to do things that would normally be core state functions. And where they do, whether it's a private security company or whether it's a corporate social responsibility project or whether it's an NGO doing mental health uh, uh, support, um, there could be any range of activities in which private actors uh, uh, do supplant the state. and. Here again, the difference between formality and informality is probably important. This is not an area I discuss in the book. The book is really about formal arrangements uh, between states or intergovernmental organizations. But there is a lot of further research that could be done about the implications of having so many actors other than the host state government responsible for providing governance functions in fragile states and even making governance decisions. Uh, and I think that this would, you know, merit a full study in and of itself, uh, because it is, as you say, a, a very much a characteristic of of governance in uh, in this time period. So we we mentioned China, we mentioned Russia, but how do you, how exactly do you think sovereignty sharing is going to be changed or impacted by the actual U.S. China competition or U.S. Russia competition, for that matter? Yeah, there are a number of ways it might affect uh, sovereignty sharing. One is that if there's a new Cold War dynamic, it could result in a race to the bottom in governance standards, and there might simply be less concern for some things uh, connected to the rule of law and more of an interest in just uh, uh, finding supportive elites in a particular state and competing for their allegiance. That would tend to reduce the prevalence of shared sovereignty. On the flip side, you may have instances in which China-U.S. competition makes shared sovereignty more likely. Uh, imagine, for example, that the International Criminal Court is unable to operate uh, as widely because uh, one or both superpowers are resistant to its activities. Uh, then you might have hybrid courts emerging as an alternative. And we'll come back to the Sri Lanka example. It's interesting that some of the same human rights organizations that were very critical of the hybrid process in Cambodia in the 2000s, a decade later, were advocating for 
a hybrid court in Sri Lanka because it was clear that the International Criminal Court was not a politically viable option, that China would veto a resolution that would send a court to, a case to The Hague. And so uh, there are times in which the competition may actually make the hybrid model more likely. Um, there also is the possibility that the United States and or China, if their rivalry intensifies, uh, that they'll want to invest more deeply in particular uh, friendly states. And one possible form of that investment is through shared sovereignty. Uh, and uh, so I think that on the whole, uh, that while the, the, the rivalry between the US and China clearly will affect the way that shared sovereignty plays out, uh, it doesn't obviously to me make it more likely or unlikely in the near term. And in particular, I think it depends on how the United States government interprets uh, that competition and how it approaches that competition. If the U.S. government approaches the competition by thinking that the best thing to do is to, to find a friendly dictator uh, and not to be concerned about governance, then there's really no reason to engage in this type of venture. If the U.S. government thinks that there may be instances in which this can help strengthen rule of law and democratic systems and that that's in the U.S. interest, uh, then perhaps we would see instances in which this would be more likely. John, I have one more question for you today before we wrap up, and it's it's kind of looking towards the future, right? We have all these cases that we discussed, and I, I'm curious, given you know you just wrote this this great book, um, what are your thoughts on how sovereignty sharing might actually change, right? We have all of these other factors in the world today uh, that are maybe going to cause crises like like climate climate change. We have this public health crisis that we're all living through. Are are these intervening factors and that may impact sovereignty sharing, right? Will well, the, the, the detriments of climate change, the consequences that emerge from it, which will likely put pressure on the very countries that you look at, many are, are, in, are in Africa. Uh, and so, you know, given the, the consequences of, of some of these other factors, is sovereignty sharing going to be more likely? I think it's very possible, uh, as you say, that, that uh, threats like mass migration, pandemic, uh, climate change, uh, and, and so on will, will in fact be uh, causes for governments um, uh, requiring foreign assistance. Now, they may or may not, in given instances, choose to pursue it through a sovereignty sharing arrangement, but in some cases, they likely will. And so, yes, I do think that the uh, challenges that many uh, uh, fragile or potentially fragile states face uh, will continue to generate the kind of governance problems that shared sovereignty is meant to address. Um, Sometimes they will opt to do it with regional partners instead of with the United Nations or even with a handful of a coalition of, 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 of neighbors. Um, it's interesting that in the last few years, uh, you've seen the, the large protests in places like Lebanon and Chile and Bolivia and in Central America. There's a fair amount of popular demand, especially in Latin America, to have uh, ventures of this kind because of frustration with government corruption and impunity. Uh, governments are resistant. Uh, and we would come back to a comment I made earlier. Popular pressure is often or seldom is, is going to be enough. There needs to be some coalition in the government and international pressure for these things to happen. Uh, and so a lot will depend not just on the sort of uh, the need side of the equation, as you're mentioning with climate change and, and other factors, but also on the policies that major powers adopt, particularly the United States. Um, 
And none of this is to say that shared sovereignty is necessarily going to work well or is a good option in these cases. As the book shows, it very often is not successful because it's tough to maintain, to build and maintain a winning political coalition. And so uh, the book is in no way trying to advance this as a panacea. Um, The argument in the book is that the dearth of other attractive options means that we need to keep it on the menu. Um, because there might not be better ways of addressing some of these challenges like corruption and impunity in fragile states. On that note, John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Folks, uh, we will have a link to John's uh, book in the description, as well as John's faculty profile at the Ford School of Public Policy, where you can check out uh, a lot of his other work and maybe even apply to the Ford School if you're interested. You can take some of his great classes. Uh, I know uh, I was a great student at the Ford School as a BA, and uh, it was a very great privilege to be there. So thank you, John, for uh, uh, appearing with us on the podcast today. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. Podcast.